0: It is Friday, April 24th, 2020, and this is the podcast version of New Mexico in Focus for this week. I am Kevin McDonald, the executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We thank you for joining, for listening, for staying informed about all the issues going on in New Mexico, which is once again dominated by the COVID-19 virus and outbreak here in New Mexico. We've got a lot of information for you again this week as we do our best to keep you informed and up-to-date on all things COVID-19 in New Mexico. There were developments this week. The governor came out on Wednesday and laid out the beginning plans for reopening the state when the time is right. We're talking about the economy of the state, especially small businesses when the essential pool of employees gets widened out. Again, there's not a date set for that at this point but uh, the conversation is starting about how that should roll out. The governor set up a panel to discuss that and lay out some guidelines, so there'll be much more about that in the coming weeks. She did extend the stay-at-home order until May 15th as well, so lots of developments going on there. We wanted to start off this week with our line opinion panel, once again joining us virtually via technology. We talked about Uh, Rural hospitals and the burden that's put on them, as you've probably heard, non-elective surgeries, a lot of the regular business at hospitals has gone away as everyone braces for COVID-19 response. But that can be a big financial hit for these hospitals, especially in these rural communities that don't have a lot of resources to begin with. Joining us on the the line this week are former Senator Diane Snyder, as well as Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR, and Sophie Martin, an attorney here in town, Let's send it over to Gene Grant for their discussion.
1: New Mexico is up to well over 2,000 cases of COVID-19. Aside from tribal outbreaks, cases are clustered in the most heavily populated parts of our state, as you might imagine. That makes sense, but it's created a unique problem for rural hospitals, which have shuttered their elective surgery operations, preparing for a surge in COVID-19 cases. Got a group of three line regulars joining me at our virtual line table today. We welcome Diane Snyder, a former state senator. Tom Garrity is with us of the Garrity Group PR. We've also got attorney, Sophie Martin, she's a regular with us. And Sophie, let me start with you. There's a paradox here. Uh, they hope social isolation measures work, but if they do, the capacity and preparation and stand down of money making surgical procedures will seem unnecessary. It's a very interesting dilemma. How do they, how do they get around this kind of thing?
2: Well, I mean, I think there isn't at this point a great plan for getting around it because, I mean, as you just articulated, there's a real tension between the larger mission of the hospital, which is the health and safety of the community and um, the health of the hospital, which is impacted by um, a number of things right now, you know, not just the loss of um, elective surgeries, but also the community saying like, you know, maybe I don't, need to go in to get checked out. I mean, mm-hmm. we see nationally that there's a, um, an uptick in, um, cardiac incidents that are not being treated quickly because individuals are like, you know, I'm going to ride this out instead of risking going in. So I mean, this is it's a very complex situation as it is for so many of us and so many businesses, mm-hmm. um, in this time of COVID-19. I don't know that we always think of hospitals as businesses, but they, they do need to be able to pay their workers. They need to be able to buy supplies. All of those things um, can't just not happen.
1: Absolutely. You know, Tom. I think we've all we're all getting a lesson here on the economics of a hospital. I, I mean, I've talked to friends who actually believe hospitals are just swimming with money; that they've got all the money they could ever need. And now we're getting this reporting that when you have a forty to sixty percent drop in income, it has profound impacts on staff and everything else. I, again, same question: How? Where do these folks turn? If they're burning this kind of cash, try, just trying to stay afloat.
3: Well, you know, hospitals are—they're—they're they're very complex uh, entities. I mean, when you look at the—you know—just the staff that they need to be able to retain uh, and attract. Um, when you look at all of the equipment and the certifications, not to mention the inventories and stuff you know, the the solution for rural health care really is to to find a way to get back to, to normal as quickly as possible. Because in a lot of these communities, uh, whether it's, a, you know, Gila Regional in Silver City or in Lovington, you know, these, uh, these health care or these hospitals are really the nerve center for the community. And it's really uh, not just a nerve center because, you know, everybody relies on the success of it, but also because, you know... Um, the the employment uh, side of it as well, you know, it generates a lot of revenue into different communities. But yeah, when when you mentioned, you know, the the drop of, uh, you know, 40 to 60 percent of revenue and that represents about 200 million dollars a month, according to the New Mexico Hospital Association, it's easy to get lost thinking, oh, my gosh, these guys are cash rich. Well, right. no, they're just it's a very expensive, very complex industry. Mm hmm.
1: You know, Diane. Uh, Searchlight New Mexico published an interesting story that pointed out that press in and, and VA hospitals here in Albuquerque tossed vital but just recently expired personal protective equipment ahead of the inspections earlier this year. And I'm wondering if if is this just an indication of how unprepared the health system is when you see a story like that?
4: No, Gene, it isn't. It, because they were following their regulations mm-hmm. and their laws. They were doing what they were supposed to do.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: We didn't know at that time we knew the pandemic was coming but not to we nobody expected it to be what it has become so they and when you're going to be inspected you can be closed down mm-hmm. for minor infractions like that and so they were doing what they thought was the right thing to do to maintain their certification and to be able to continue to provide services to their their patients unfortunately We then faced the idea, uh, the problem of, do we have enough supplies? Do we have enough masks? Do we have enough ventilators? Uh, All of these kinds of things that that are needed. So it wasn't that they were being frivolous, they were following their regulations and what they were supposed to do. I wish we had had a better idea, both nationally and at our state, of what was coming. So they could have taken the risk and just said, I'm not gonna do it. Another thing, the regulators should have said, we don't know what's coming. We're gonna cut you some slack for six months. Right. Then we come back and check you and, and ding you if you're doing something wrong. So that, make, that I makes mean, sense. That's, that's what they should have done.
1: And I appreciate your point. Looking back, it's easy for us to sort of, you know post quarterback or post game, you know, analysis, it's very easy to kind of figure these things out. But so let me go back to something you mentioned at the top of this, which is interesting. And this was actually mentioned in one of the quotes, Colleen Heil had in a very terrific uh, piece in the, in the Albuquerque journal about the stresses on rural healthcare is that folks are not showing up as you mentioned for other things, but the folks who are showing up in rural hospitals are showing stress related problems from this, pandemic and the shutdown, the uncertainty, the being out of work, all that kind of thing. And Sophie, there's like a cruel irony here when you think about who's actually coming in and who's not coming into hospitals in rural parts of our state right now.
2: That's right. Um, you yeah. know, and I think, uh, I imagine that everybody who's watching this is experiencing some level of extraordinary stress, right. um, un- unexpected, unusual stress as a result of of the pandemic. Um, you know, just talking with Colleagues in in my industry we, we we talk about how like we're we're doing for those of us who are fortunate to still Be able to work to be working. We're doing our jobs And then there's like an additional 50 to 75 percent of just planning for the multiple futures that we can conceive of um, Keeping our families safe keeping our extended families safe what the implications are for our jobs um, I posted on Facebook not that long ago that that I felt like I could never shut down. And it's mm-hmm. it's true, I, I spend my day worrying about w- what impact COVID-19 is gonna have on my employees and the programs that we run. And then I go home and I read the news and I worry more about what impact COVID-19 is gonna have on, on my family, the people in our community, um, who, you know, who are all so terribly impacted and then, um, and then again, what's going to happen with my work? So it's like you can you cannot actually ever escape it if you're not working. That's right. um, I hear from friends that they're spending phenomenal amounts of time trying to get unemployment, trying to get assistance. And so they spend all their time also worrying about when will businesses reopen? Where can I find a job? Will the unemployment insurance come through for me? How is this going to work? It's a phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, emotional load that everybody is bearing right now. <music>
0: Going to keep the topic on rural New Mexico and its response to COVID nineteen. Now, we wanted to check in with a doctor that we've had on the show before. Her name is Leslie Hayes. She's with El Centro Health in northern New Mexico and Española, and we wanted to find out how things are going there. They don't have a huge number of diagnosed cases yet, and as of now, no confirmed deaths. But definitely, life has changed, and one of the big ways it has changed is the way that Dr. Hayes and others in rural New Mexico are using telehealth, which means we wanted to check in with the resident experts on that, Project Echo. You may have heard of them. We've featured them on the show in the past. They are really a model for telehealth and connecting uh, specialists and experts with general practitioners like Dr. Hayes. Uh, They're up and operating here in New Mexico, as well as most states, as well as globally. They're really the experts on how to do this hub-and-spoke model and to make the most out of expertise on various topics. And they are working overtime around COVID-19, holding regular sessions with doctors, first responders on everything from how to prepare for the response to how to deal with the stress and pressures COVID-19 is creating. Uh, correspondent Megan Kamrick sat down with Dr. Sanjeev Arora. He's the founder of Project ECHO at UNM as well as Dr. Hayes, here's their conversation.
6: I'm joined today by Dr. Leslie Hayes. She's a family practitioner with El Centro Health in Española and Dr. Sanjeev Arora is founder of Project ECHO at the University of New Mexico. Thank you for joining us on New Mexico in Focus, virtually. Dr. Hayes, what do things look like right now in Española and Northern New Mexico generally? How, How high is the concern level? about COVID-19?
5: I'd say the concern level is appropriately high. Um, so far, we are lucky that we have not had a lot of cases here in Rio Arriba County. I think last time I checked the DOH website, we had 10, um, and no deaths yet. Um, nonetheless, I, I think part of the reason our numbers are low is because people are responding appropriately. I have been so happy when I talk to patients. People are taking this seriously. They are staying home. Um, Part of it is because Espanola has such a strong-knit family structure, people have folks living at home who are elderly or who have chronic illness, and they want to protect them, so they are taking this seriously. And is testing available readily in that area? Yes. Um, Presbyterian Hospital in Espanola. Pres has made a real focus of making sure that testing was available at all of their sites. So we have been able to test in Espanola very early on, we've had testing available. Um, I, as a matter of fact, last week I did a test on a patient of mine who's going in for alcohol rehab. No symptoms and no exposure, but the rehab was requiring a test before he could go in, which I thought my friends in other states are telling me that they cannot get testing on patients who are symptomatic and have had exposures, and that I could get some testing for someone. It's clearly appropriate. I mean, this was a great thing to be able to get this test, I got it done Friday afternoon. I had the results by Sunday morning. So testing is readily available and we are doing well, so.
6: That's very fast. That's faster than I've heard in many places.
5: Yeah, no, it's, I I am told that it only takes them four hours to run the test, but that the big delays, first off, just getting the test down to Albuquerque takes time if you're out in the hinterlands. And then um, there was a backlog for a while was why it was taking five to seven days. But as far as I can tell, they seem to have worked through the backlog because It has not taken longer than 48 hours for any test I've run in the last week or two, so.
6: We have heard a lot about COVID-19 outbreaks and the response and playing out in New Mexico's urban communities, but what is your day-to-day experience like in Española right now?
5: So the big thing is barely anyone is coming into clinic anymore. We're doing almost all of our visits over telehealth, and that's been kind of a mixed bag. I am so grateful that I am still able to provide care to my patients. It is not, I don't feel like I'm doing quite as good a job most of the time over the phone providing that care because I can't see them and it's harder to, um, you know, talk with people. There are definitely times where the telehealth has turned out to be a little better. Telehealth is nice if I just need to check in with somebody a week after starting a medication. It's really great to be able to just schedule an appointment, you know, check to make sure they're not having side effects and see how it's working for them. And That we're actually getting reimbursed for that, which has been lovely. Um, We are realizing we did a lot of our visits over telehealth even before. I would say probably at least 20% of my visits were telehealth, but we were never paid for them before.
6: Ah, Um, That's interesting. That changed
5: because of this? Yeah, so they're paying for telehealth visits now. Mm -hmm. Um, The other, I mean, there's multiple other ways. We're screening everybody's temperature first thing in the morning, um, all of the staff, and then we're screening all patients before they come in, both for everybody were screening for temperature, for symptoms of COVID-19, and for um, exposure to COVID-19, and trying very hard not to have anyone in the building. The hospital, again, I'm so grateful to Espanola Hospital. They have been great. They agreed to see anyone we were concerned about COVID-19. They have a special clinic where they have the proper protective equipment, and um, they do the testing at that clinic as well. So we're all wearing masks. I've I'm in a closed room is the only reason I'm not wearing a mask right now, but otherwise we're um, pretty much wearing masks full time. Um, And the only people we're seeing in the clinic, we are seeing babies for shots. I'm seeing pregnant women intermittently to, you know, sort of measure and make sure everything's going well. And then occasionally you'll have somebody with a rash or an abscess or something you just can't do over the phone.
6: Is it financially challenging if we're hearing this around the state because there's no elective surgeries right now? People are not going in for much of anything because of state orders. Is that difficult financially for
5: you folks? I think we're actually holding steady with the telehealth. Um, We definitely, we would be in real, real trouble if they not approved payments for telehealth. But um, primary care is still pretty essential. And so being able to do it over the phone means we can keep our patients safe, we can keep our staff safe, but we can still make sure that people get the care they need. I mean, People still need to be taking their blood pressure medications. They still need to be monitoring their blood sugars. Uh, They still need to be taking medication for opioid use disorder. All of these are really important. And I think if we don't make sure that patients get care during this time, we're gonna see a huge spike in um, conditions and deaths after um, things have settled down with COVID when um, people's out of control blood pressure starts to hit. So like I said, I don't think it's quite as good as seeing him in the office, but there's still a lot we can do to make sure that they are taking care of themselves and getting the care that they need.
6: And as a frontline medical professional, what's your biggest concern right now in terms of personal protective equipment and having um, enough ventilators and other resources?
5: So for me personally, um, the, my biggest fear actually is of getting COVID-19 and not realizing it and passing it on to patients or coworkers. I mean, that is actually what I worry about the most. Um, so the personal protective equipment is important, both because I don't want to get it myself. Um, and it's interesting because people talk about the death rate. What really scares me about this illness is not the death rate as much as the critical care rate. It has much higher rate of critical care than almost anything else we have ever seen. So that really scares me and making, so making sure we have the N95 masks and then, you know, um, the, the gowns and the gloves and the face shields um, if we're dealing with someone who is uh, likely um, COVID-19 and possibly going to um, uh, aerosolize, which is something like a cough.
6: Dr. Aurora, I want to turn to you. You created Project ECHO as a telehealth model. It started here at UNM and now is spread across the U.S. and globally. And the idea is pretty simple. You use the web conference technology to put specialists in direct contact with Medical personnel in rural communities, which often have only primary or general practitioners um, like Dr. Hayes. What are you all doing specifically during the COVID 19 outbreak uh, to help with these response efforts?
7: You know, we've been doing ECHO for 17 years, and over this time, we have uh, built it into a large network which consists of about 850 separate programs which are operated out of about 394 academic centers in 39 countries. And the learners are currently about 100,000 learners learning in 153 countries for about 70 different disease areas. And this was going on uh, for many years until all of a sudden we were faced with COVID-19. And once um, we were faced with this problem, the first um, order of business was, uh, for us was How can we use the ECHO model to train New Mexico clinicians, healthcare workers, nurses, medical assistants, doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants in many, many different areas. So we partnered with um, the Secretary of Health, Kathy Kunkel, we partnered with the Secretary for Human Services, uh, Dr. David Scrace, and other members of their departments. And we've actually first launched an ECHO with them and we were completely swamped in that more than a thousand people joined and we ran out of capacity and we realized immediately that the demand was just enormous. So as soon as that happened, we, re- we realized we had to do a lot more. So in collaboration with the executive branch in New Mexico, we have now doing seven separate ECHO projects every week seven separate clinics. So we have office hours for doctors. We have training sessions for first responders. We also have an echo project on resiliency because a lot of healthcare providers are are, uh, experiencing extreme anxiety Mm. and and worry. And um, some some worry is because of their patients, some about protecting themselves, others for their mothers and fathers that they could take this infection back home. All of these things um, are a matter of great concern and so we have an echo for resiliency. So seven times a week, we get people together, people from all over New Mexico join and we discuss cases, they present patients um, that have it or they discuss problems such as how should they manage when personal protective equipment is not enough? or mm-hmm. how to interpret laboratory testing. And then we partnered with Tricor Laboratories to come on as experts. And um, the state experts in the D- Division of Epidemiology and, and um, et cetera all participate as experts in these calls. And the office hours are run by our infectious disease specialists at the University of New Mexico who are managing the COVID-19 patients in the university hospital. We have a lot of COVID-19 patients in our hospital. Our ICU is packed with them.
6: I know you can't do things like you can't create more ICU beds or ventilators, but talk about how this Project ECHO model helps in the overall response. Why is it so important?
7: So there are two basic aspects of the work we do, uh, Megan. The first is the whole world needs to amplify the public health response. So there are best practices on how to isolate patients, how to trace contacts, how to set up laboratory quality systems, how to increase the number of tests available. Whom should you test? If you have limited testing, when you have limited personal protective equipment, who should get it? How should you reuse it? How should you on and off it, um, we call it donning and doffing without infecting yourself. And, And a variety of systems of that sort, when to open businesses. So we have echoes around all of that, amplification of public health response. Then there is this issue of amplification of the care response. And Dr. Leslie Hayes, who is an ECHO provider, I'm proud to say, she, um, you know, her colleagues want to know how to protect themselves, how to do a clinic so that other patients don't get infected, how to do a telehealth consultation, how to, um, when to admit, when to manage at home, when to call to the clinic, and how to treat at home, in the clinic, and then there is a whole group of doctors for which we have a separate echo clinic on Thursdays in New Mexico, for example, for inpatient doctors, how to manage people in ICUs, ventilators. Hmm. In, in, in low income countries, uh, people are talking about how to use, not use the ventilator when you don't have enough. How do you use other kinds of machines to support patients? And even in some cases, they talk about how to share ventilators, one ventilator for three patients. That's. Very suboptimal, we don't recommend it. But um, there's all kinds of different uh, things. And then the last part of this is, uh, Megan, new research is coming out at the rate of 100 publications almost every day. And how does a doctor like Dr. Leslie Hayes keep up with all this? So we have teams that assimilate all this research and then present it practically on a daily basis to clinicians all over the world so that they don't have to go searching for this information.
6: Well, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask both of you, what is something about the fight against the spread of COVID-19 in New Mexico that you want people to know that they may not already know or be able to see and understand?
7: Go ahead, Leslie.
5: So this is totally non-medical but I want to say I've been so grateful for the response of the community. People have made us hundreds of cloth masks to that you know our clinicians are wearing and also that we are giving out to people in the community to wear when they go to Walmart or to the grocery store. And people are really coming together around this and it's just been heartwarming to me that people, you know, care about doing the right thing. And I just think that has been an amazing thing to see. I'm so proud of my community for that.
7: I'm extraordinarily uh, grateful for the leadership that the state of New Mexico executive branch is providing in this setting. You know, they were very, very, we declared a state of public health emergency when there was one patient in, in New Mexico. That was a very visionary and a courageous act on the part of our governor. It wasn't an easy thing to do to really start locking down when you have so few patients. The enemy is invisible. No citizen can actually see the virus. And it's hard to make sense if you are not a physician. Uh, why does it make sense to lock everything down? But the result of that foresight and getting the testing that we need. So we have tests in New Mexico, which in New York, they still don't have it. You know, Just over the weekend, I had a patient in New York City who called me for help, and she went. She had symptoms of COVID nineteen. Went to a a, a clinic there. I, I connected them to a clinic to go. And what they were told was there wasn't a test. They should just quarantine themselves. So that to build up the testing capacity to really reinforce our public health, um, it gave us time. And I think that has has really been a tremendous boon for every New Mexican.
6: Thank you both so much for talking with us about this. And please stay safe as you continue your important work.
0: This week, Senior Producer Matt Grubbs also had the chance to catch up with U.S. Senator Tom Udall to talk about federal, federal relief uh, that is coming the state's way to help with COVID-19 as well as the additional relief packages that they are working on in Washington, D.C. right now. The topics include exactly how that money gets rolled out, the accountability that goes into where those funds flow, uh, the tribal communities and the money getting the money that they need for their responses to them in a more timely and efficient manner. So here is Matt Grubbs and Senator Udall.
8: Well, Senator Tom Udall, thanks for taking some time to uh, chat with us about the federal response. We appreciate it. Thank
9: you. Pleasure to be with you
8: today. Thanks. As we speak, uh, an agreement has just been reached um, in Washington, D.C. for, um, as you just said, you're calling it version 3.5 of the federal response or the stimulus. Uh, Can you run down what's in there for us?
9: Sure. Well, first of all, the the big issue was we had run out of money in the small business uh, appropriation, which was basically um, money, it's called the PPP program, which means that that money goes to a company, they get a loan, but if they keep 90% of their payroll or above going and paying people, then at the end of the time period of the loan, it becomes a grant. And so the whole idea there is we know that people can't go to work because of the coronavirus, but what we're getting is keeping the employees employed and paid so that they can uh, do their thing at home uh, and and help the company in any way, but they're ready to go when we're able to go back to work.
8: And Senator, that definition of payroll, my understanding is it's fairly broad, so it can be used to pay for things like uh, health benefits or 401k contributions on the side of the employer, something like that.
9: Yes, it's 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 very broad. It's flexible in the sense of just keeping the employees on the payroll. I think that's the the main push, and it puts money in the pockets of those who need it. I mean, if you were, you know, if you're giving money to shareholders, that's one thing. But in a crisis like this, if people are Uh, subject to being laid off, and they don't know they have a job, uh, you could have real disruption. And so this keeps them employed, keeps them paid. And then when the economy's ready to go back and and, uh, get into gear, we're we're, uh, uh, ready to stand it up and get going.
8: The New York Times recently has been doing some reporting on oversight of, of this money. Um, they reported that larger companies, places like Potbelly Deli, which is a national chain, um, a biotech company that was incorporated in, in, I believe it was Singapore, these are companies who are, who are getting access to this money. And in fact, they're able to hire attorneys, um, teams of attorneys to file their federal response That's not what a lot of people have in mind when they think about where this stimulus should go is there anything in this latest round that would correct that or provide more robust oversight
9: yeah well what we did here is we were worried about that too we've been asking for that information we have really pushed for everything we could get uh, in terms of the metrics of how it was going out and the impact it was having They've given us very little, and I'm glad that somebody's doing the oversight here. But what we have additionally, uh, $60 billion going to small lenders in small rural areas, so that money can go out to the people that really need it. These are the smaller businesses. These are the ones that were neglected in the last package. Uh, And so that's something that's important that we've added. Secondly, uh, we've added $50 billion to the economic disaster, program and then also another 10 billion to a grant program for people that uh, are really vulnerable in terms of the economy and then we've got another 75 billion in terms of the uh, emergency needs in the healthcare system and then finally uh, the testing as we all know is the key to getting back to work so we have additional money for testing and for contact tracing which will really make a difference in terms of getting back to work
8: it sounds as though most uh, epidemiological experts think that it's not possible to go back to work and avoid uh, another spike in cases without that kind of uh, robust testing and contact tracing. Uh, can you talk to me about the importance of that effort uh, as it goes alongside of perhaps relaxing some of these stay-at-home orders?
9: You know, I think we're trying to find the right balance here. You know, we're talking about saving lives and making sure that we keep the economy in a good position so that it can snap back and and start working again. And the key is knowing what's happening in our communities in terms of the testing. If we um, know from the testing that it's not going up, it's leveling off, it's going down, then we're in a much better position in terms of uh, allowing the um, people to start going back to work. If you have contact tracing and you've gone back to work, you identify who it is that's infected, and then you're able to go into the community and contact all the people they were exposed to and keep them at home. And so it's a real judgment call. I think it's a judgment call in terms of science and our public health people. Uh, Here in New Mexico, the governor has a good epidemiological team that's working with sure that we save the lives, but we're also ready to stand up the economy.
8: Uh, Folks have been somewhat critical of the White House response. Uh, I think it largely depends on where you are on the political spectrum, unfortunately. Um, But as you look at uh, what exists in terms of a national um, testing plan, policy program, however you want to term it, what do you see and are you encouraged by that?
9: Well, I don't, I don't see a national testing plan. It's clear to me the announcements out of the White House, the coronavirus task force that's out of the White House keeps saying over and over again, this is up to the governors. That isn't the way it should be. I mean, we should have a national program where uh, if we have tests that aren't needed in one place, we can move them to another. If we have a hotspot, we can address the hotspot and get on top of it. And we're not doing that right now. I'm going to sign on to legislation that creates a national program that puts a a major person behind it. A lot of people call for a czar or something like that. And that's the direction we need to head in under the Defense Production Act. Because when you have an emergency like this, you need one person in charge and out there dealing with supply chains, dealing with hotspots and getting things to the point where Uh, We can get this under control and get people back to work.
8: And the Defense Production Act, that's the legislation whereby uh, the president is able to order businesses to produce certain critical material. We're thinking, of course, of planes and ammunition. Um, Here we're thinking of PPE, that sort of thing. Are you clear on whether or not the Defense Production Act has been used or did GM and um, Ford just start producing ventilators on their own?
9: I, I don't believe that we're in the position to know because there hasn't been the transparency we need. I mean, several times the, the White House and others have made announcements, uh, then there's very little in terms of what's behind that announcement, how's it happening. Um, so I, I think that's why you have basically a czar that would come out and say, this is what we're doing, answer questions every day and be in a position to, to release all the information that's been collected. Now it's state by state, governors putting it out, and uh, the governors need help. You know, Some of these governors are, are well under and have their hospitals full. Others don't have as bad a situation, but we're in this together, and we need to make sure we get the testing, we get the contact tracing, and we get this under control before we put people back to work.
8: You mentioned the uh, part of the stimulus package, this latest one that will go to smaller rural banks. I know you've been paying paying attention, I should say, to smaller rural hospitals as well. They're in kind of an interesting situation, it seems, where, like other bigger hospitals, they've stopped doing elective procedures, but they don't quite have the influx of perhaps COVID-19 patients, at least here in New Mexico. Um, that we've seen elsewhere, unless you're talking about, of course, the northwest corner of the state. Um, That's a lot to get in there. But uh, what's your read on the situation of rural hospitals in New Mexico right now?
9: Well, I think our smaller hospitals are hurting. And it's because uh, on behalf of them, they kind of cleared the patients out uh, on these non-essential surgeries. Uh, They said, we're going to postpone those. And that was their revenue for this period. The models seemed to show we were going to peak uh, earlier than we did. Uh, the peaking date has been moved back. And I think the governor's trying to work with them uh, in terms of maybe allowing something to go on there in terms of patients and having revenue come in, but also anticipating the, t- the peak going forward and needing to have all the hospital beds available for coronavirus patients.
8: Uh, There is money in this stimulus package for rural hospitals. Is that correct?
9: Yes, yes. And there there was money in the last package. There's money in this package. And we will keep monitoring what's happening with with the rural hospitals. There are also a a classification called critical access hospitals, where there's money that that hospitals can get there. And I know some of our hospitals here in New Mexico are trying to qualify for that.
8: Okay. Uh, You sit on the Commerce Committee, I believe, Appropriations as well. Is that correct? That's right. How how will this money be coming to New Mexico? Um, Is it through existing programs? Is this just a lump sum? Can you, uh, without getting too deep into it, can you give us an idea of how this money flows?
9: Yeah. Let me give you different categories that we've talked about here. First of all, on the hospitals, uh, there are providers in New Mexico that are plugged into Medicare and Medicaid. And so the, the government has all of their numbers and has their accounts and is able to work out a formula and send the money out. We've already had a substantial amount of money released to hospitals. Secondly, uh, the money for states, localities, cities, and tribal entities, tribal governments, uh, that money uh, is being released uh. As we speak, there's there is in that pot for New Mexico and state governments and the city of Albuquerque 1.25 billion dollars, and so that money is starting to move out. And we've agreed, and the president has put this out on a tweet that that money going forward is going to be able to be able to you be used for lost revenues and. That's the situation New Mexico's in right now, unfortunately. We're losing revenue dramatically because of the oil and gas industry, because of a number of other things that are going on, because you just don't have the economic activity that brings in the revenue. So, um, so those are a couple of the areas where the, the money will come in. The tribal governments have their own pot that I fought for, first time in history that, that $8 billion is going to flow to the nation's tribes. Uh, That's being set up at the Department of Treasury and will move out to the tribes, I believe, by April 24th. So there there are a number of places where federal government in appropriations is also sending out money. Uh, For example, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is getting additional money to help with the tribes. The arts community is getting additional money under the, the standing programs that are there. And there's money across the board for programs like housing and uh, and other uh, programs that are ongoing that we push those up a little bit. So the good thing is we have substantial infrastructure in place in terms of programs, and we're able to send the money out. And the people there, like the SBA, can get the money out immediately.
8: I know there was some frustration uh, among the tribes uh- at the first round of stimulus, uh, I understand that it was going through the CDC, which is an unusual um, program as opposed to the BIA. You mentioned the Treasury. Um, Has that been fixed, and and will this be sort of a a simpler process?
9: Well, the Treasury's been very slow. They've been very slow on their consultation with tribes. Uh, We hope they'll get their, their money out the door on April 24th, so that's very disappointing. The money to the Indian Health Service, uh, a good chunk of that was released. Uh, We've also seen some of the newer machines be sent to the Indian Health Service, the testing machines. So some of it's working, some of it isn't. We're doing everything we can to put pressure on the administration to get this right and to get the money out the door and get it into the hands of the people that are helping. Mainly these are the frontline workers.
8: I know we just have about a minute left here. I, I know you like to get outside and, and walk and hike as much as you can. Uh, have you been doing that? And, and what has been the attitude of, of people that you've seen on the trails that you've been able to, to hike around on?
9: Well, I've been out a little bit on my own property and then on some trails that I know of that nobody's on. But from everything I've seen in, in the community here, kind of on the foothills of the Santa Fe Mountains, Uh, People are very respectful. They're very far apart. If they meet on a trail that's not six feet wide, people move off the trail. People are wearing masks. Um, I wear a mask any place I go outside the house. And so it's important that we keep up this social distancing and then keep those masks on because they they're there to protect everybody else in terms of the aerosols that uh, uh, people catch this from.
8: Sure. Senator, I want to thank you for your time, uh, for joining us, explaining a little bit about it. Um, I'm assuming we'll probably talk to you again before this is all over.
9: Well, thank you. Thank you for getting out the word to everybody. Really appreciate it. You take care.
0: Back to the line panel now and continuing the discussion on when and exactly how to reopen New Mexico when the time is right. A big key to that, as we all know, is going to be testing. And exactly how that works, and whether or not we can get to a point where every New Mexico resident can get tested and maybe tested more than once. Because uh, as we're learning now, you may have a test, you may test negative one day and positive the next. So uh, testing is a really big part of this. The state's done a lot. The governor talked on Wednesday about how we're now able to test 5,000 or run 5,000 tests a day in New Mexico, which is really up there among all states in the U.S. But the line panel has got some thoughts on how we continue to build on that momentum and how it impacts reopening New Mexico in the coming weeks and months.
1: Welcome back to The Line. We just heard from Senator Udall about the important increased and rapid testing will be to successful restarting the economy. The senator was blunt in saying he didn't see a national plan, which means it's up to the states. New Mexico has been aggressive. But does it have the resources and the capacity, meaning labs, to test enough people to open the economy in any meaningful way? Tom, Gary, let me start with you. We all know testing is going to be critical. What are you seeing so far to make that
3: happen? Well, there are a number of uh, testing sites statewide. I think right now the, the biggest hurdle to New Mexicans getting tested is the confusion that's being generated by um, you know, the expanded testing? Is it open to all? Are there only, you know, open to certain members of a health plan? Um, is it only open to essential workers? And so there creates confusion when you have confusion, it, key, it prevents that forward progress is which is what we need in order for the economy to really uh, kind of stabilize in the midst of this healthcare care crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that the governor did a good job yesterday or earlier this week, rather, uh, in really kind of starting to address the economic Side of this healthcare crisis of this uh, of the COVID virus by establishing you know uh, some parameters for the um, for the business task force and uh, the council I think is the proper word and just some of the what those steps will look like to determine the next steps um, it, I think that was very therapeutic for you know providing some. Uh, some peace of mind for a lot of business owners and a lot of New Mexicans.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Sophie, interesting, Love uh, Tom mentioned Loveless. Uh, just recently, they started doing free tests to anyone, mm-hmm. uh, capping it at a certain number per day. But this is a significant change. This is not just folks with showing symptoms or just first responders or medical folks, but anyone could walk in. Is that where we have to go to get, this, to get the, the numbers right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the guidance we're now getting, not just from, from national experts here in the U.S., but from our, across the globe, right? Is that, is that the testing needs to be um, widespread. It needs to also cover people who don't so show symptoms, um, because our conversation is moving now from just treatment and containment, although that is essential at this time, but to the idea that we need to know whether if you've had well first of all if you've had the disease what the impacts are of having had that disease do you do you run the risk of being reinfected do you now have some form of immunity that's going to inform the work on um on vaccines as well and so that research is really vital as we look forward to like you know what is our community what's our country and what's our world going to look like six months down the road, eight months down the road, et cetera, and and without that testing, um, we're really, we're blind. So so the fact that New Mexico is on the forefront of that now, we're participating in really important programs involving testing for COVID-19, I I think that we should be pretty excited about that um, and following what that's gonna mean in terms of future plans.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Senator. Interesting. Walmart has done a, or starting to do a nation nationwide rollout of testing in their parking lots, including here in Albuquerque. And they're doing uh, offering tests to doctors, nurses, police, firefighters, and other first responders, regardless of whether they have COVID nineteen uh, symptoms or not. So it's, that's a good program. But let me ask you this: the FDA has approved a uh, at home kit now collection to, te- to self test, so to speak, a swab. And I just, I just, I don't know. It's this is kind of tricky. I think a lot of folks would celebrate that, but a lot of folks at home are not exactly experts at <laughs> if you live at home or if, you know what I mean. This it could be have a lot of false <laughs> negatives, false positives. But we got to get there somehow on this home testing thing. What, what's your thought on that?
4: Well, I think it's a step in the right direction, but like you, I'm not sure that our public is confident enough. To even do the testing themselves, mm-hmm. I like the idea. In Walmart, you, you uh, one other thing they've done is they have allied themselves with a company called Quest Diagnostics, so the results will come back faster. Right, I, that's incredible because, to me, the bottom line is we don't have enough data, and true information to make decisions. We're doing the best we can because the thing that surprised me is that you could, can have had the, the virus with no symptoms at all, right? And so how do we know, and you can still carry it, or can you still carry it? Can you still, you know, we need to know, and that's where you've got to go to check testing everybody. You mm-hmm. can't just do it to, I mean, certainly we should go first with the frontline line providers but we still, to be able to make true and good plans, we have to test everybody. And one of the things uh, that also has happened is New Mexico has joined in a pilot project with the White House to uh, to how determine how to improve the detection. And this is one of the steps. Increased testing is one of the most important things. And mm-hmm. then the second phase of that is to look at where the contact took place, right. so we—if there are patterns or are more areas that are prone to th- the virus. So I—I I, think—and I kind of chuckled when I heard that uh, Senator Heinrich did, said the president virtually had not done anything, when in fact we our governor is participating in a program. So mm-hmm. uh, I—you made, made mention
1: of that in the in the presser yesterday.
4: Yes, did, yeah, exactly
1: I, right. Hey guys, thank you so much.
0: This week, we also continue something we've been doing for a while now here on the show, which is catching up with journalists across New Mexico who are covering COVID-19 and the response in their communities. We've been down south to Algernon Diamasa at the Las Cruces Sun News. This week, we're going back up north to Taos to talk to Stacy Matlock. She's the managing editor of the Taos News. Uh, again, I wanted to catch up with her about the local impacts there. As well, especially I should say, around tourism, which we know is such a huge key part of the Taos economy. So here is correspondent Laura Paskus as she sits down with Stacy Matlock.
10: Stacy Matlack, editor of the Taos News. As of Wednesday, there are 16 cases in Taos County with about 500 people tested. Are people getting the care they need and the tests they need in Taos County? Well, actually, I think perhaps that number has gone up
11: and you're going to hear about that today, Laura, because I just found out yesterday that two of the staff at Taos Living Center tested positive. So I don't believe that was in yesterday's state numbers. So I think we might be as high as 18 now. Um, And the the irony is that they had just tested the entire staff and all their clients at the nursing home a week and a half ago and they were all negative. And then two staff were retested and they were positive. So that's how quick things change. Um, And uh, we had gone a nice stretch before that from eight April 9th, until yesterday, we had no new cases. We had stayed at 15. So, Um, you asked if there's enough testing. I mean, I don't think there's enough testing anywhere, right? They really, of course, it would be best if you could get everybody tested, and that's just not possible right now. I've not heard too much complaint from people that they feel there's not enough testing, I think. Uh, So far, everybody who feels they need to be
10: tested have been tested, so. The Taos News has reported about Holy Cross Medical Center. In Taos, that's a 25-bed critical access hospital that serves about 37,000 people. Um, You reported it has six ICU beds and four ventilators. What are they bracing for, and how is that hospital getting ready? So uh, last week, Rio
11: Arriba County donated 20 more beds from a nursing home that they took over, one that had shut down. So that gives them 20 more beds. They've converted some of their rooms into additional ICU isolation rooms if they need to. Uh, So far, none of the 16, potentially 18 people that have tested positive um, have been kept at the hospital. They've all been able to go home, be isolated, there was one person that, that I know of for sure that was sent to um, Santa Fe um, because they, they had uh, a lot more um, uh, symptoms. Uh, and so I think that that is what Holy Cross is doing. If it's somebody who presents with really serious uh, um, symptoms, they may be transporting them down to Santa Fe or Albuquerque. Um, So that's all I know at
10: the moment. Okay. And the hospital is um, offering a loyalty differential of $2 an hour, um, your newspaper reported. Is there a problem attracting uh, and retaining medical staff in the area, or is it just kind of a, a reward
11: for people? I think there might be a bit of both. They were already struggling a little bit um, to attract and, and retain some healthcare professionals. Uh, you know, Presbyterian um, drew away some of our nursing staff a couple of years ago. Uh, but I also know that the union, uh, which represents uh, folks you know, all the way up to Taos at the hospital, um, they were pushing for a, some kind of increased hazard pay essentially um, and so Holy Cross uh, did do that. Um, and that was an additional pay on top of what they had just negotiated with the union, so.
10: And Taos obviously is a tourist town. Um, given the virus and the public health measures that we're taking, um, what is Taos like right now? Is it a tourist town without tourists or are people still coming and how is this affecting the economy up there?
11: Uh, like any place that's a tourist town it's devastated the town Uh, I think we do have a lot of restaurants um, more than I expected have tried to remain open for takeout and local people are working very hard to support the restaurants tourists have been fewer and farther between, which is good. And I really hear very few people encouraging tourists to come. Uh, They really are urging people to stay away for now. There was still a bit of a problem with short-term rentals. We have a lot of them in Taos. And uh, a few of them were sort of ignoring the urgings, but uh, the town of Taos at least has now uh, banned short-term rentals and that was helped by the governor's restrictions. They've uh, said that they uh, have to be at a reduced occupancy and so that's pretty much prevented the short-term rentals from operating in the town of Taos. So Yeah, I mean, you still see the occasional Texas license plate, but of course, they may be residents, so it's a little hard to say that they're out of town.
10: So I'm curious. I'm here in Albuquerque. I rarely leave my house, but when I do, it still seems like there are a lot of people out, and I'm not seeing a lot of people wearing masks. What about in Taos? Are people staying home when they go out? Are they wearing masks? How is the governor's message getting across up there? Uh, at least
11: a week or so ago, um, Taos County had the best um, the best record of staying home based on cell phone data. Anyway, that we were not traveling anywhere near as much. There had been something like a seventy percent reduction in travel. So I do think, for the most part, most people are trying to. Um, But, you know, and definitely there are a lot more people wearing masks and gloves when you go to grocery stores than there were even two weeks ago. Uh, Not everybody. There's certainly, you know, you have, we have a big major road construction project underway. And those workmen are not wearing masks for the most part, um, unless they're standing over the melted asphalt, having to deal with that dust and stuff. But... uh, yeah, for the most part, there have been some complaints about some of our grocery stores. You will still see some checkers and, not checkers, but um, folks stocking shelves and they are not always wearing mask and gloves. Um, so I would say it's probably 60, 40. 60, 60% of people are wearing mask out in public and 40 or not.
10: Oh, that, that is really good. Um, any other unique challenges that you feel like Taos, the, the city itself, or Taos County are really facing right now with this crisis? I think
11: one of the biggest uh, concerns for a lot of people is that our farmers market at the moment is not open. I mean, it was not going to open till May 16th, but at the moment, it has no place to open. Now we know that the Farmers Market Board and manager are working on that, but we really do not know yet how far along they are. They say they plan to open May 16th as scheduled, but uh, we don't know where. We don't know if that will be on the plaza, the Taos Plaza where it has been held. And that's a lot of people are really worried about that, that both the farmers and the people who really um, frequent the farmer's market here. So at the moment, We don't know for sure, but they are saying they will open.
10: Right. Well, Stacey Matlock, editor of the Taos News, thank you so much and stay safe.
11: Thank you. Thanks, Laura.
0: As always, we end with some final thoughts from host Gene Grant. He uh, weighs in on what now is really hitting struggle point for a lot of New Mexicans in terms of the stay-at-home order and struggles with isolation Uh, But out of that struggle, we're seeing lots of innovation. And so you'll hear Gene talk about a, a Facebook Live we did this week that was really fascinating around an effort to help local musicians in New Mexico. You can catch that on our Facebook page. encourage you to keep track of the show there on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. We are in all those places as we try to bring the information to you in the best way possible for you and your family. That'll wrap it up for this week. We hope you stay safe. And happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week.
1: This week in our Facebook group, Focus on New Mexico, we had the pleasure of hosting Thomas Goodrich from the New Mexico Musicians Relief Fund, an organization started to help working musicians in our state stay afloat financially. It's in our feed, so check it out. As Governor Lujan Grisham said this week, mid May is the near term goal to start moving into the second phase of getting things back online, especially for businesses. Interesting to see her name, a Republican, Brian Moore, as a co-chair of her economic response group. Lots of rural New Mexico names in that bunch too. Now, mid-May is not a get out of jail free date. Tempting as it might be to think of it that way, let's keep our family, our co-workers, our friends in our hearts, our thoughts, and grab a mask if we have to head out. Keep your distance and by all means, continue to stay home. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus.